Hi, this is Wendy Wood, behavioral scientist and author of the book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Join me today is Wendy. Wendy Wood is a research psychologist with 30 years experience in understanding how habits work. She is Provost Professor of Psychology and Business at the University of Southern California, where she's also served as Vice Dean of Social Sciences, 2008 Radcliffe Institute Fellow, and 2018 Distinguished Chair of Behavioral Science at the Sorbonne INSEAD at Paris, Wendy has advised the World Bank, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and industry leaders such as Procter & Gamble and Lever Brothers. When she completed her graduate degree in psychology at the University of Massachusetts, she went on to become the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. Having published over 100 scientific articles, she has received numerous awards for her research and teaching. For the past 30 years, her research has been continuously funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, and the Templeton Foundation. Wendy lives in Washington, D.C., and is here to talk about her book. Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Bill. I wanted to get into the habit of welcoming guests strongly, and this was a great place to start and renew that focus. Glad I gave you the opportunity. Tell me, when you were growing up, who was somebody that influenced or inspired you? I think my father was one of my biggest role models growing up because he came from England. I was born in England, and he is essentially a self-made person. He grew up in a family that didn't know much about education, didn't believe much in, ed edu in education. He dropped out of school at age 14 and then ended up getting a PhD in physics, ultimately. Wow. He really had a life trajectory that was very impressive and was a fun person to talk with. There are two statements that many people will have some difficulty not knowing your dad, reconciling that he has a PhD in physics and is a fun person to talk to. What are some memories of the ways that he related to you growing up that stuck with you and, and are major impressions to this day? He had very high standards for everything his kids did and everything he did. It was hard to live up to them as a child, but very motivating as an adult to push yourself and to keep focusing on what you can do to make life better for yourself and other people. Do you remember one of those standards when you were growing up that was a challenge to achieve? Yes, he expected excellence in everything. I played the flute and I was enrolled as a kid in the Eastman School of Music. I was a terrible flute player. I'm never going to be a flautist, but his ambition set very high standards, even when I couldn't meet them. What was the message behind that? Did you take away that he just had a strong belief in you? Or did you feel that you were overlooked for who you really were, that this wasn't an interest and you really didn't have talent to pursue this ambition? It gave me a chance to figure out that I don't have that talent. It wasn't a feeling of not being supported. It was a feeling of if I showed any interest in something, he was going to help me take it to the ultimate level 
that I could achieve. That's what it ended up. Yes, I do recognize that trait as well. I also like to have high standards. And I've often told my son, who was a Division One tennis player, that if his interest had turned to soccer instead of a tennis court, we would have a soccer net in the backyard. Those sorts of things to yeah. really support wherever his interest lay. That's what you want to do with your kids. Absolutely. Do you remember how this really important value of setting high standards and expecting yourself and others to achieve them played into your adult life, maybe early on in choosing maybe your degree program or in working with someone as a counselor or even in your first early where you realized all of a sudden you were in charge of setting a standard and you wanted someone to achieve beyond where they had said that they were going to go? Let me say that it permeates my research and particularly my research on habits, because I think all of us have the experience of setting goals and finding it hard to meet them. The most important goals in life are ones that require repeated behavior. Taking care of your kids requires consistency, repetition, constant support. Living a healthy life requires that we eat good diet, lots of fruits and vegetables that we exercise regularly. Doing these things once or twice is not going to help us achieve our goals. You're not going to be able to save for retirement by not buying something today. That's important, but you also have to not buy something tomorrow and the next day. Repetition is really important in meeting our goals. And it's that realization that led me to study habits and to try to get an understanding of what habits are and how they work. Let's start there and lay the foundation as to what is a habit and its core components. Habits are a way we learn. And they're a very different learning mechanism than what we're used to. We're used to making a decision and figuring out all the reasons why we should do something, bolstering our motivation, and then exerting self-control to make it happen. But habits don't require that sort of struggle. Instead, habit memory develops Every time you repeat a behavior, repetition is the key. Your habit memory picks up what you do repeatedly in a given context that gets you a reward. This is just like brushing your teeth. When you start, you have to think, when you're a kid, you have to think about what you're doing. You have to figure out whether you're doing it right. You and me, we get up in the morning, we stand in front of our sink, and we just do what we've always done. We don't have to think about it. That's habit memory. Memory is cued by where you are early in the morning. You see your toothbrush. You just pick it up and do what you've always done. It's a kind of a shortcut. Habits are a shortcut to getting the goals that you're looking for in life through repetition. And we all want clean teeth. Habits really play in, remembering our audience, habits really play in with those of us who want to build successful businesses and lead high-performing teams and companies. That follows the same pattern, doesn't it? If things that we do repeatedly gets reinforced through that, through the context of where we are and in our relationships. Exactly. I use the example of toothbrushing because it's something that we're used to thinking as a habit. But habits permeate all the things that we repeat in life. Successful writers have patterns that they follow. 
Most have places where they write. They write for a certain amount of time during the day or a certain number of pages. Successful managers have ways of interacting with people and either allow people into their office, don't allow people into their office. They have standard ways of managing people that they have developed over time that have worked for them in the past. When you think of industries in general, even organizations have things that seem like habits, right? There's procedures, there's forms, there's practiced ways of payroll, of HR that are repeated over time and that people end up doing without really thinking. Is that one of the key ways of identifying a habit is that it occurs without a lot of conscious thought? It's to use the, the scientific terms, it's cued by a context in your environment? Exactly. It's cued automatically. You don't have to try to think of it. Instead, it just automatically comes to mind. There's You have a response that you have to give and you just do what you did before, whatever that thing is. Or like you're walking into a room and somebody says, good morning, have a habit. We simply reply, good morning back. Exactly. You don't have to think about what to say. It's just the way you do it. This works really well. It works really well at the organizational level. It works really well at the individual level. So long as you still want those rewards that you got in the past, right? I would even say not the rewards, but the results, because that may change based upon the context. You may have the same habits that you started with at an earlier job that you're now repeating and the context may be different. I've noticed people just keep going back to what's familiar. Exactly. This is something that is really effective, the shortcut way of doing things. When context remain the same, when you stay in the same job, as you're saying, it's a challenge though. When the situation around you changes because then you just stop. Or overwhelmed because here we are in the spring of 2022. We've just experienced a couple of years of significant externally imposed change and different contexts and ways of working. Let's go back and just clarify a couple other distinctions between words that people often associate with habits so that we're clear about what we're referring to. There are underpinnings like understanding things that influence behavior. This comes when I started reading about your early work history on the influence of attitudes on behavior. I thought to myself, let's get your perspective on attitudes, moods, rituals, routines, habits, and mindset. Just lay it out. What goes in each of those areas? Even though there might be some overlap between them. That's a great question because people confuse those things. Habit memory is not accessible to consciousness. What that means is we're not aware when we are forming a habit or strengthening a habit. We also don't know even when we're acting on habit because it's part of our neural system that we don't have access to. You have to think that, keep reminding yourself that all mammals learn through habit. Your dog learns through habit. It doesn't have the ability to think and reason and evaluate how well they're doing. None of that is involved in habit. Habit is something that is in the unconscious. And realizing that, it gives you an idea of why habits are so hard to change. 
much because people don't understand and can't understand what habits are. In contrast, people do know what their attitudes are. I can ask you what your politics are. I can ask you what food you like. You can tell me those things, but you can't tell me what your habits are. Let me give you an example in case you're not convinced, of the different types of memories. You probably know how to type on a keyboard really well. We all do. That's how we converse at this point. But if I asked you to list the keys on the second row of your keyboard, can you do it? It takes some effort because you can use them. That's your habit memory. You've learned how to use them, but you don't haven't stored them in a memory system that you can just reel off what they are easily. We have these different memory systems and usually we're just not aware of them. When we don't have that distinction that there are memories that exist in different areas, we often attempt to do things like change a habit unskillfully, which leads to feeling frustrated and unsuccessful with that endeavor. We just go back a few months to January when everyone sets out to build new habits for better health and better savings and better exercise and fail miserably within the first month. Unfortunately, most of us don't know how to do that. You're absolutely right. That is the result that we get stuck. We see other people get stuck. People we're working with, people we're supervising, even our bosses get stuck in how they do things because we don't have an understanding of how our habits work. What are one or two key insights that help us in addition to the fact that it's a different kind of memory? It's an unconscious memory. Because many people will argue. I can imagine many people who are friends of mine and clients of mine saying, of course I know what my habits are. I've designed it so that when I start my day, I do these things. Is that more of a ritual than a habit? Like a morning ritual? Habits are closely related to most rituals, but we think of rituals, again, we're making distinctions between terms. We think of rituals as habits that have some meaning to us. So if you go to church on Sunday, the behaviors that you engage in during the service, that's a ritual that you want to think about and you want to experience. That gives people the experience of spirituality and spiritual growth. But we want that. We don't want to think about our habits. People who say that they have habits that they are very thoughtful in performing, I would say, great. That means your habits are working for you and they're ones that are consistent with your current goals. But they're still dependent, just the same way as all of our habits are, on automaticity. The reason why they're so easy for you to do every day in just the same way is because you practice them in the past to the point where you can do them without thinking. They don't require struggle and analysis, decision-making. They just flow as part of your day. Let's talk about some of the ways that we attempt, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, to alter our habits and our mindset. So true or false, Wendy, are questions a reliable way to focus one's thoughts? Are questions effective in conversations with colleagues, for instance, people who are dark reports, members of our team? Asking people at work for their input is a great habit to her. Yes. We want all of the people we work with, our coworkers, to be asking for input because that's how we learn. 
that's an important way in which you can get everybody working together. You've said that habitual memory also plays into action. So it becomes like a shortcut designed to conserve mental energy. In your book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, you talk about high-tech icons like Steve Jobs, who wore turtleneck and jeans, or Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, who's famous for his great t-shirts, as well as President Obama, who always wore a blue or gray suit. They did it all to save mental energy for more important things. Is it science-backed that this works, or is it just a plausible myth because we're following it because other people we look up to have laid that path. That may be why all of those individuals started wearing the same uniform, is they were thinking of someone else, they were thinking of comfort, they were thinking of what was most presentable in most contexts. Those decisions are important to start a habit. But once people repeat a behavior, then it doesn't require decision-making. They then can do it without having to make a choice. And does this work? Absolutely. You want to streamline as much of your life as you can. You want to exercise every day on a regular basis. You want to have those conversations with employees and with your coworkers on a regular basis about how to move forward, what has changed, what's working, what's not. You want those to be automatic part of your day so you don't have to struggle and make a decision and figure out when and how. Instead, you can focus on the more important things like what people are actually saying to you. One of the key parts that I took away from reading this is that there's a type of mental energy that's needed for decisions, which is a renewable source of energy, yet it can be depleted by making trivial decisions. That's really what people were doing, like the people we mentioned. They were conserving that energy for more important things that they wanted to focus their decision making energy on. Is that accurate? Yes, it definitely is. We have a limited ability, limited capacity to make decisions and to do them thoughtfully and carefully. I don't know about you, but I can't be on all the time. I get tired and I start making bad decisions if I'm forced to do it over and over again. Our habits keep us on track. It works really well until, as we said, we start a new job, we do something to put ourselves in a new context that may maybe the market changes and what worked before doesn't work now. There's so many shifts in social media, in technology. Keeping up with all of those is in a way, that's what you can do if you have the right habits. That's what you want to focus on. Now, I know that you follow sports and I like following sports too. And we'll often see people who, like Michael Jordan, had his lucky UNC jersey that he would wear even while he was playing for Chicago Bulls. Or Bjorn Borg, who started not shaving during Wimbledon and always wore the same fila outfit. And they claimed this is what got them into the right mindset. It was a habit. It was a ritual. It was something they gave thought to. But what was the part that was habit-driven in choosing the these lucky parts of their preparation for competition. They were repeating the things that had happened when they were successful, as if that's going to help them be successful again in the future. Who knows? Maybe. It made them feel better and more in control, which is a great thing. But 
it's what we call superstitious behavior. Because I could wear all of Michael Jordan's clothes I wanted to. It wouldn't make me successful on the basketball court. Wait a second, because that is exactly what Nike and Adidas and Thunder Armour count on. <laughs> this is a multi-billion dollar industry predicated on people following this that has no basis. Yet it does make us feel better to wear the same clothes as our icons, to make us maybe try harder and strive to meet those higher standards. To the extent that it does make people work harder, that's great. But we're not going to have the same talent as those yeah. individuals, no matter what we do. Not automatically, anyway. Let me elaborate on that. An awful lot of sports requires really precise habits. And that's why athletes train and do the same thing repeatedly over and over, which is great when you're Michael Jordan because you're doing the right thing. But you can also end up repeating behaviors, golf swings that really don't quite work and shots on the court that will always miss. We can repeat good and bad habits. And it's really a matter of our goals, whether something is good or bad as a habit. There's a lot that informs as to what habits to develop, which is what good coaching is about, both in sports as well as in business, is making sure people are making choices that are achievable and high probable paths to achieving certain results. When you see certain conditions on a football field, you're going to want to pass because there are no defensemen between you and your receivers. You never want to try for a passing shot on your first shot when you're off the court. You want to buy time so that you can get into better position and hit a more aggressive shot on your next shot. Those are the high probability plays that someone can help shave time off of someone's experience and learning curve by offering those insights and helping cultivate the habits that will serve them well under times of stress when you don't want to have to think about things. Or as you talk about in your book about how firemen really don't want to be thinking and making decisions. They want to go in with a plan, execute the plan. If something happens, they want to fall back to plan B or whatever routine will get them back to safety. Isn't that right? It's under those pressure situations that people want to have a plan to follow, not be making new decisions. What we found with the research on firefighters is that they don't really have a plan. Instead, they're responding automatically to the kind of smoke, the wind direction, where the heat is the greatest, and they don't make plans in the way that we understand them. Instead, they're reacting based on habit. Beginning firefighters do have plans and they follow them, but the more experienced ones are doing so based on habit. They just figure out what the cues are. They know from past experience what the right cues are and they respond automatically to that. That's also what good football players should be doing is they should be, as you say, scanning the field, figuring out where the opposition is and where their players are and just automatically responding because there's not time to think about plans. And the best coaches train players to the point where they are just responding automatically. It's as if they almost know what to do. 
but they don't. It's not a knowing thing. It's sensing they've just done it so much before that the right response automatically comes to mind. That's when you have the right habit. I imagine that your response to what people who are responsible for others within organizations, you don't always want to lead through habit. You want to lead through conscious thinking. That's, I think, the difference between being a good performer, being a good manager, and being a good leader involves slightly overlapping, distinctly different skill sets. Because the higher up you go in an organization, the less you want it to be just from the gut and more you want to be thinking about what is the situation really calling for now rather than what worked at my last job in a different industry seven years ago. Do you agree with that where you want to make the stimulus response shorter the lower down you are in an organization, but the higher up you go, you want to have a gap in there so that you're choosing and not just reacting or responding. It's absolutely true that we want people in decision-making positions to have the ability, have the energy, the time to make decisions to pay attention to what's going on around them and to make the right choices about how to move forward. But in order to do that, even really high level leaders need to have habits. As you saw from the Mike Zuckerman example that you were giving us about clothes, people who are in leadership positions have to figure out how to streamline a lot of their day so that They eat, they exercise, they get dressed, they interact with subordinates and co-workers as much as possible on habit. Then they have the executive control is what we call it, the brain power, the energy to focus on the decisions that are most meaningful for the, the organization in moving forward and coping with change. Now, habits, when they begin, are very fragile. I remember reading studies that talks about how situational self-control often masks how fragile habits are with new behaviors. There was a University of Pennsylvania study that you were referencing that found out that when students were asked to minimize distractions during a specific relevant goal that they had for their studies, that they were unable to do it. It's something that managers are able to relate to that are looking to definitely relate to while working from home and trying to set up different environments. Talk about the relationship between willpower and habits, please. For a long time, we thought that some people have a lot of willpower and are able to control distractions and work hard and meet their goals. Other people don't have that much willpower. We thought that the people with a lot of willpower who were being so successful, they were able to exert energy and control and make things happen. Because of that willpower, they were often admired by others, weren't they? Absolutely. In our society, we admire people who have a lot of willpower and self-control. It's like when the desserts come out and you're with friends, do you simply say, oh, that's not on what I'm planning to eat this week list? Or do you say, I'll just give in this one time and completely blow your eating plan? It's that kind of willpower, but that's often short-lived. Continue on, please, because you learned some really interesting insights from this. What we have learned in the past couple of years is that people who seem to have a lot of willpower, they are not struggling. They're not exerting energy and self-control when they make the kind of decision you're talking about, no dessert. Instead, they know how to form habits and they have formed healthy eating habits that they're not even considering dessert. They just eat as much as they want of the healthy food, and they're not tempted by other 
possibilities, other things they could eat. It's the same with students when they study. Those who have really good self-control are the ones who know where to study. They go to the library and they don't even think about what they might be missing by being there. They just focus on the work. They forked habits to do their studying automatically and they don't stress about it. Then contrast the other group, the ones that don't have the habits that are in support of the behaviors that they want to generate. In this case, it would be the students that didn't have those habits who were engaged with willpower. And the study showed that they might've been able to force themselves to sit down and to clear their desks of distractions. Yet it was very short-lived when they were engaging with willpower in order to form or follow a habit. Is that accurate? Yes, that's it exactly. We can either struggle to meet our goals and have to exert self-control and ultimately not be especially successful. We've all had the experience of New Year's resolutions. Or we can figure out how to form the habits that help us meet those goals. Right, because that's where many of us are with different goals we have in our business and our lives. We've clearly found and validated that willpower won't help us engage in a behavior that we're not set up for and have those good habits already available to leverage. We want to be able to help our colleagues and our teams be successful. What are two or three tips based on examples that you've worked with other companies and other managers or colleagues that help people form those habits for themselves and for others, rely on the scientific back research that says, look, willpower will take you so far and only for so long, but in order to build something that's longer lasting, that's moving in the direction that we want, maybe it's a new strategy, maybe it's adopting new software, but in order to do that, we've got to do these things. I'm thinking of a time when I was in a store that had just converted its whole register system over to a new point of sale system. I was so happy looking around, engaged in what was going on. As I came up to the register, the cashier scanned the first three things and the fourth one didn't come up and she just threw it in the basket and put in a price. And I said, no, 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 you've just undermined the, the whole system that they spent millions of dollars investing in. But she knew the price. So she went back to what was familiar rather than take the effort to fix the problem or add that item into the database that wasn't showing up. Help us make connect those dots when willpower won't get us to where we want to go. That's a great example. We've all had similar sorts of examples. And the problem with not with that em employee not ending entering the product into the system is that maybe he or she knew how much the product costs, but other people that work with them don't necessarily know that. They're hamstringing the system and making it hard for it to be successful because they're not updating it. Even though she was well-intentioned. Absolutely. And wanted to serve. I mean, you could think of that as good service, right? She wasn't making you wait until she figured out how to fix the system. But then the system works less effectively in the future. That's a great example. What we know about changing habits is this, that first off, you have to make the behavior easy. Now that sounds obvious, right? If you can make it easier, people are more likely to do it. But keep in mind that you build habits through repetition. So the ultimate goal needs to be repeating the behavior, not thinking about why it's important, not thinking about whether it's what you want to do, it's just repeating the behavior is how habits form. As part of training, 
that particular salesperson should have been trained what to do, should have had practice in what to do when items weren't in the system. They won't just throw them away and ignore the barcodes. They will instead fix the system. But you need to give people practice in it. You need to make it easy. Maybe for that, the way to make it easy is to do it when a customer is not around. So they're not under pressure. They're not feeling observed. They're not feeling like they have to do it quickly. They can work through the process on their own. They're given time to practice it. And then it becomes much more habitual. Figuring out ways to make it easy is the first thing. What context will it be easiest to do this? What we're talking about are disruptions. The new system is a disruption to how things have been done before. When we move to a new job or get promoted to a new role, it's disruption to what our responsibilities and routines were. You actually shared a really interesting example that I, I loved in the book about when you move from your hybrid Honda Civic, which you love and had driven for a dozen years until your husband encouraged you to move to another car. And that car had all sorts of different audio signals and beeps and buzzers to warn you of things. You love that about it. And one day you were traveling in a rental car. It lacked those additional cues. You adapted to the new environment, developed habits that you weren't thinking about. Tell me the story of what happened next and what you learned from it. The best environments are the ones that are cueing us to do the right thing. If they do that effectively, we'll just learn to respond to those cues without thinking it through, without even being aware of them. The thing with my rental car was that it didn't have all of the audio signals, the safety signals that let me know that I was getting too close to something. And I'd driven without them for 10 years. But when I got in a car and I got used to them, then in a rental car that didn't have those safety signals, I just ran into a brick wall because I, I didn't realize how much they were controlling my behavior. That's what happens when you're in the right context is all of those signals are there and it just helps you repeat the right behaviors. That's wonderful. I think that there's a small minority of people who are truly research scientists who get into an accident like that and immediately start thinking of what kind of article this could generate. New insights into your research. Many of us would be upset, but then start taking steps to resolve it. I'm sure there's a small group of people who would start to blame the current agency for giving them a car without these features. Mark Twain observed that nothing is so in need of reforming as other people's habits. Why is it that we're so interested in changing other people's habits rather than our own behavior besides the fact that it's so difficult to change at the outset. Part of it is also we don't realize that our behavior is a signal for other people. We can be the context for other people and we can guide their behavior in positive ways for us or negative ways for us, but we don't really know that we are part of that context. It's one of the reasons why we sometimes get surprised at other people's behavior. It's so consistent and maybe not what we're looking for. But other people's habits also seem like they should be easy to change. If you have bad habits, if I know somebody who bites their nails and I don't bite my nails, that's one of the few bad habits I don't have, then I think, wow, that would be easy to change. It must be that you must not want to change it or you're not trying hard enough. We don't recognize, even in other people's behavior, habits are at work. We don't recognize it in our own. We don't recognize it in other people's behavior. We don't see them as being stuck in the way that 
Many of us are. What's interesting is that for everyone listening to this now, you've just gotten the glimmer into how to be more empathetic and understand that people are struggling from within their own set of habits to perhaps change a behavior, or perhaps they're oblivious to the fact that they're biting their nails causes you anxiety. It's really not their fault. It's not more than it's your fault for your habits. <laughs> Habits have the potential to lead us to a better life. It's beyond just being productive. It's about setting it up to be healthier, stronger, treat ourselves and others well. I just want to read from page 155 of your book for a moment. It talks about a habitual mind, and I quote, a habitual mind is a benignly thoughtless mind. It's a mind that sorts tasks into their proper places. It delegates. It sits at the intersection and assigns roots. It is not obsessed with figuring out when you fall asleep, as you might have tried to do as a child. Instead, it just responds the sleep cues in your contacts as you drift off to sleep as you usually do. What you're talking about is to learn how habits operate and to use them to develop consciously and maybe to interrupt, to add some friction to ones that you want to stop, slow down, or decrease the frequency of. You conducted a study that involved a sushi recipe. The experimental group was told in advance that they have to plan ahead and memorize steps, while the control group was not given any instructions but just carried out performing the sushi recipe. Can you describe how overthinking impedes habit formation. When you think carefully about what you're doing, then you vary slightly what you're doing each time because we're perfectionists and we aren't doing things consistently always. We don't get the same level of repetition when we're thinking carefully about what we're doing. What you're saying is the exact repetition. It, yes. Because of the conscious effort, it's like a Heisenberg observation where anything that's observed can't be the same as when it's unobserved. And by putting attention on it, we're varying it. Exactly. You want to make sure that the behavior is easy enough so that you can do it in a relatively straightforward way without having to struggle through it each time, then you're going to be much more likely to form a habit successfully. Isn't that something that's typically done in typical training? I know I've done it many times as told people, now pay attention because this is important to learn. You're going to have to perform this on your own in other circumstances, under other situations. We consciously talk them through it and then repeat it enough so that it becomes something that is unconsciously competent and then we give variety to it and variation so that they're challenged and have to respond to the different situations. What's the flaw in that based upon research? What do you recommend that people do differently when designing trainings and development opportunities? Oh, I don't think there is a problem with that. I do think that's the way that habits form is so often we start with our goals and our understanding of a system. But then we need to repeat the behavior in exactly the same way once we figure out what to do and how to do it. I think that's what you're referring to is the initial training session about how to do something. But then when you repeat the behavior, you want to be doing it in the same way each time. And ultimately, it forms into a habit and you can do it without conscious thought. Instead, as you say, you can instead think about the, the current circumstances and your current goals and what might be different and how to tailor the response to the new context once you get that habit down. But you need to get the habit down first. 
what I realize in listening to you now is that one of the huge mistakes as to why billions of dollars is wasted on training year in, year out is because we never look at the whole life cycle of building the habit. If we just invest in the initial part, then don't go through the repetition, don't go through challenges and variation, and don't go through being able to pass it on. What is an industry or example in a business setting of where you've seen training work most effectively? And what do they do that most people miss? Effective performance, as we said, is both a combination of exploiting past habits, what's worked in the past, and exploring new opportunities and new ways of performing and approaching a task and a problem. Even on an assembly line, both repetition, habit, and awareness of when products aren't coming out the way they're supposed to, or when there's some problem in the line, there's still a balance between those two approaches, the basic habit, and then some understanding that there's a problem and that you can't keep doing what you've been doing all along because there's a problem on the line. Toyota had a very smart assembly line at one point where they had workers disrupt the assembly line on a regular basis. The idea was that people had a set habit and an automatic way of moving the product through the assembly line. But if you disrupt the assembly line, you also get people to recognize that there are variations in the product that are that is being passed on and that you may need to stop and fix something that is problematic. That's a really nice balance between exploitation and exploration, making it clear to workers that both are important and that you need the habits, but you also need to be aware of challenges on the line. I'm going to recommend a limited series on Netflix called Back to Space, where they talk about space training because it has to be. It's so high stakes. It has to be effective. I think that they really illustrate, I'm curious as to whether you agree with this after you've seen it, but I think they really illustrate the importance of training people to respond to situations the way that it's always been done, and then teaching them the importance of adapting to things in different situations. And they actually do introduce different variations, different breakdowns, different failures without telling them to make sure that they have that confidence. It's the same as building in those variations as part of training for people to perform under pressure. It's the coach on the football field sending someone in to break through a defense to make sure that the quarterback knows how to respond if and when that happens during game time. It's those kinds of things that really make for taking it to the next level, isn't it, Wendy? It's that extra variation, that extra effort in order to make that work even better. Yeah, your example with NASA sounds very similar to what Toyota was doing. And certainly similar to what coaches do is they train in the habits, but then they also train players to respond to unexpected events. You do that by disrupting the regular plan and the best players know how to do both. They execute, they exploit the past plays, but they also innovate and explore new options when they have to. Here's an interesting situation. Here we are two years into the work from home pandemic shift that caused us all to not work together in offices. 
and curtailed travel. In your book, you, you write about how one of the great benefits in a very limited perspective of the Vietnam War was being able to study drug addiction. What do you anticipate will be some of the similar kinds of insights that come out of studying how people's habits were disrupted during this two-year period and what we're able to gain from the struggles, the insights, the ways that we work together, the adaptations that we made from this experience? What would you call out as things that don't work as well when we're not together. I think brainstorming and creativity is a little harder to master because you don't have the social support and the social contact outside of these online conversations. I think that there's a social support component that helps people be creative and feel recognized and able to explore new options that you lose when you are doing things online. But one of the really nice things that it's done is when I am introduced to an organization, it often flattens the hierarchy so that I meet managers, I meet workers, I meet the boss, I meet admin staff, and they're all on the same screen in a way that would not be true if it wasn't this online interaction. There's some good and some bad that come with everything. And I think probably many organizations are going to go back to a hybrid model where they get social interaction some days and then other days they go back to online because it gives employees much more flexibility in integrating family life and work. At least if your kids are in school, it does. When your kids are staying home, it's a real challenge. Do you encourage managers who are planning or in the process of doing this to keep in mind to make transitioning because now we're disrupting routines that have been established and norms that have been formed. Now we have to disrupt that a little bit to get people to come back into the office and see the benefits of it. What are a couple of the do's and don'ts in order to make that successful? I think you want to make it really rewarding for your employer, employees to be at work. So set up contexts in which they can experience the benefits of that social interaction and that support and the opportunities for brainstorming and creative solutions that being in a group can provide. You want to make sure that people experience those and they don't view it as control over their life or some restriction that they can't stay home and work from home in the way that they're used to. Because yes, we have formed new work habits in the past two years, those of us who are office workers. Whether we're working from home or working in offices, one thing remains the same. We always come to the point where I ask, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? We'll see. Try me. All right. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you, who was somebody who influenced or inspired you? And you talked about your dad with the high standards he expected of you as his daughter. When you were a teenager, Wendy, what's a song that you loved? Oh, are there any habit songs? I don't think I knew any back then. There were no songs or music groups that you liked? Yes, but I think I'm best responding to questions about habits. So I'm going to say there weren't any about habits. So pass on that one. Okay. What tool or system do you help, do you use to help you stay on track and productive as part of your work environment? I have work habits that I formed when I wrote my book and I've stuck with them. I write in the morning. I don't use a tool. Instead, I use my work 
context to activate habits. And that's much more reliable than any tool. I sit down in the morning, I have breakfast with my husband, we check out the newspaper, and then I start writing. It's my pattern. It works for me. What would you say is the book that you've given the most as a gift that's not your own? Oh, I really like the book, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Palin. I've probably given that the most because it makes the case that what we eat is so dependent on the context around us and how our eating environment is structured. He considers wonderful ways in which we could restructure it so that we can eat healthier, the environment can be healthier, and we can also eat the things we like. Sustainable farming is possible, is what Palin told me. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most personal satisfaction or pleasure? I've started going to local coffee shops. I'll work for a couple of hours at home, and then I'll go to a local coffee shop because there's other people there, and you can meet people. I know people in my neighborhood now. It's easy to start feeling a little isolated working from home. You've stopped accepting that isolation is just part of the environment. Exactly. I've been seeking out new contexts in which I can actually experience new things and be challenged. Anyone who's Googled starting a morning routine will find, as I did this morning, over 136 million web posts that offer advice ranging from don't hit the snooze button to drink a full glass of water. What's the valuable takeaway? And what are a few suggestions that I'm sure you've seen that make your eyes roll? Call out some of the nonsense that people are saying about what makes for effective habits that you clearly know is not repeatable, is not sustainable, is not helpful. I hate to say this, but so much of what is on social media about habits is really not very accurate just because we can't know how our habits function. You can't observe your behavior and figure out what your habit memory is for doing things. That's like the problem of what is the, the second row of keys on your keyboard. You can't know these things because you don't have access to your habit memory system. What you see so much online is that people are trying to make sense out of habits in ways that are understandable to our conscious awareness. I think it's like most apps. You can buy apps that promise to build habits and you can join programs that promise to build your healthy habits or your financial habits or work habits, productivity. Most of them don't have anything to do with habits at all. They have to do with planning. They have to do with monitoring behavior. Those things aren't involved in habit memories. Habit memories are focused on doing. It's a way of capturing what we do repeatedly. If an app is not trying to focus you on repetition and getting that behavior easy and rewarding so you're likely to repeat it, it's not likely to form a habit. Wendy, you have been so generous and helping us gain insights into habits today. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. I want to say I appreciate your contribution so much. Before we say goodbye for now, Wendy, can you share with me where we could find out more about you and your work online? You can check out my website, Good Habits, Bad Habits, and it actually has some quizzes on there so you can figure out how much you know already about habits. It gives some feedback if 
you don't know a whole lot. It's a learning tool as well. That's a great suggestion. We're going to link to your website as well as to the quiz to help people take it and get some scientific basis and underpinning to understanding how habits can have a powerful effect in their lives. Wendy Wood, author of Good Habits, Bad Habits, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. My pleasure, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.